writers write wrongs. If an idea or a story I'm writing speaks to something I'm angered at in the world, it becomes medicinal for like my soul to, at least in a made up world, to figure out a way to fix that thing. The things in my gut want to say no to become the things that I'm most passionate writing about. This is the Act One Podcast. I'm your host, James Duke. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, don't forget to subscribe and write us a good review. My guest today is comic book writer Jim Kruger. Jim is an American comic book writer, novelist, and filmmaker. He's a bit of a legend in the comic book world. He's considered one of the top-rated writers currently working in American comics today. In addition to creating his own comic properties, his projects include the prestigious X Trilogy from Marvel Comics and Justice from DC Comics. Jim is a great storyteller, and he tells several great stories on our podcast today. And just so I don't get any complaints because I didn't warn you, there is some use of flowery language and wordy dirds, so... Be sure to listen to this episode with your earbuds in if your kids are around. Enjoy. Jim Kruger, welcome, man. It's good to see you. Hey, thanks. So happy to be here. And by here, I mean like at home in my apartment where I've been for the last year and a half. (laughs) Sorry. To to be able to interact with other humans is is a wonderful thing in this day and age. I... I always enjoy spending time with you. I, I feel like every time I come away from our conversations, I feel I feel a little bit smarter, a little bit more clever, and um, and and have enjoyed life a little bit more uh, every time I spend time with you. So thanks for joining me today. Oh my God, that's such high praise. It's <laughs> a big now. You have, you have a lot to live up to now. So I know. It's, I, well, <laughs> just a little to live up. Too. <laughs> Jim, I, I, I want to talk to you about um, <clears throat> uh, kind of a, a wide array of, of topics today. And um, but first off, I, I, I'd love for people just to know your, you know, your love and passion. One, one of the things I love about you is your love and passion for film and story. Um, that's something that you just, um, you know, there's a couple of friends that I have that and you're one of them who. Uh, and we have a mutual friend, Scott Reynolds, who I've interviewed on this podcast too. And you guys just have such a deep love for film. And I, where does that come from for you? For you, where does this passion and love for film come from? You know, I don't know if it's just nostalgia. And, and it's not just film. It's definitely story overall. I mean, my, my, my dad got me into comic books at a really young age. Um, and I grew up in uh, probably one of the most cloistered Disney families you could possibly imagine. Like, every Sunday night was watching The Wonderful World of Disney. Yeah. With- frozen heat reheated frozen pizza and mm-hmm. and it was the one night of the week i was allowed to have soda <laughs> it was like there, there are all these warm memories of story and family coming together around story so it starts there but then i think there was a point um early on in college even though i was already making up stories even though i was already 
you know, I was building on my imagination. There was a point in college where I started reading Alan Moore's Swamp Thing almost at the very beginning. And this was before he did Watchmen and became famous for that and, and yeah. all that kind of thing. Where I saw uh, I, I saw something he was doing where I looked at it and I said, I could do that. Not the way Alan Moore does it, because, I mean, he's such a he's so amazing. But it was like, I could do that. So my appreciation for story wasn't just from the outside looking in. It was from the it was like, oh, I want to be a part of this. And I would already see movies that that other friends hated. Yeah. And because of the ending of the movies. And I was like, well, if you did this, that ending would work then, wouldn't it? Yeah. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Jim, you should have done that. And then bit by bit, like almost accidental stumble with accidental stumble, I found myself in the process of becoming a storyteller. But but it wasn't like this great ambition at all because um, I didn't, and, and it could have been, but I never even dreamed that I could get to do any of this. I never hoped that I could get to do any of this. Is it, is Alan Moore, would you consider him your greatest influence or who are some of the, um, some, some of your greatest influences? Well, on the comic side, I would say, you know, the, the big three of comic book writers are probably Alan Moore, Grant Morrison and Frank Miller. Those are the three that really, you know, I read and I reread and I reread, um, you know, Neil Gaiman's one of those big names and stuff like that. But I love his short stories, his prose short stories, probably more than anything. Like, there's just something about his short stories. And this all gets to do, you know, this all moves into film. Like, I was a giant fan of the Evil Dead stuff that Sam Raimi did years ago. And so yes. as soon as I started having comic books that I was writing, you know, I was sending them to Sam. Not because I thought anything would come of it, but just because it was um, it was fun to think that I was sharing my stories with Sam Raimi. So I would send him comics, and that led to a couple of really nice meetings with him that were just amazing that we can talk about later. But but I want to say that you know my story of getting into story is so like one toe at a time. I was like the wimpiest person getting into the hot tub imaginable. Why, why, why do you say that? Why? Um, probably part of it was self-esteem. Part of it was part of it was probably this Midwestern sense of ethics that I had of like, Oh, don't push, don't, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, everyone's got a story to tell and, you know, it was, you know, my, my, my great, you know, my, my great problem, I guess, is, is politeness. Is it, is it, a, is it where you have such an appreciation for great story that a part of you thought I can't, I can't be in the same water. Like I can't imagine myself. So why would I even try to be in the you know, same water? That's, that's, that's where I am now. At the beginning, it was just like, oh, maybe I can do it. Oh, what if I try this? Oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And now it's like, oh, my gosh, how can I even go up against this? How? Oh, my, you know, these people are taking meetings with me? What? 
<laughs> I find it fascinating that you, you know, had that perception kind of early on. What was, what, what kind of pushed you into, I'm going to do this? What, what, what led to you saying, um, I actually want to m- make a, a career out of this. I know I don't want it to just be, you know, a hobby or an, or a passing interest. I actually want to try to get someone to pay me to do this. Uh, <clears throat> well, two things. Um, one, when I started reading Alan Moore, I got so, I, I was also going to school for advertising. I was going to be a copywriter. Um, and yet I wasn't a very good salesperson, at least not at that point where I was looking at myself and saying, and saying, Oh, I know how to speak to people. I know how to engage in a way that I see where I have something that, that would be of interest to them or helpful to them, whether no matter what client I was representing in advertising or not, like I just did it. Cause I thought, Oh, I've always been good at puns. So I guess I can do that in advertising. Like, like that was the whole reason <laughs> for getting into it. It was ridiculous. Um, <laughs> you were just going to spend the rest of your life writing puns for Volvo ads. That's what you were going to do. Right. Well, well, I am proud of some of the ads I wrote when I worked for the Sheboygan um, fishing tournament, Coho fishing tournament. Um, That's it, amazing. It's, it's a really conserved and, and it won awards. My campaigns won awards, which, which <laughs> were amazing. You know, it was my first job out of college. It only lasted six months, but like people going into Sheboygan and, and it's a conservative city. And by conservative, I'm not talking politically. I'm just like, right. you know, it's, it's a happy little, yeah. you know, town on a, on a great, on one of the great lakes. And, you know, but people coming into town would see these, giant billboards that would say, keep your fly open for three days in August. You know, <laughs> there was a newspaper ad that opened up that said, hang out with the local hookers. <laughs> you know? It was all type. It was all really fun. Cause if it's about fishing in Sheboygan, listen, if I don't get a movie script out of you about something that takes place at the Sheboygan fishing tournament, I'm going to be profoundly disappointed. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. They even have this they even have this um this boat thing they do every year for their tournament in which all the businesses in the area um all the businesses in the area build their own cardboard boats. And most of the boats never make it off the dock. And so I was I was you know, because I was just good at puns. That was all I could really do. I was put in charge of, like, I was company mascot, almost put in charge of things. So I was put in charge of our boat, and we did it, and we only got halfway, and we're taking on water. And, and I said, okay, there's only one thing to do. So we all stood up in our boat and saluted the audio, the, the people on the shore as our <laughs> boat collapsed and sunk. And we won most spectacular sinking <laughs> in there. I've heard of that competition. I've actually seen somebody else do that. I mean, not in Sheboygan, but uh, that would be such a great documentary. <laughs> it would be actually. No, <laughs> you know, we're going to follow this team as they build their boat, and they can only use like they can cardboard, only use, like, yeah. tape, and cardboard. <laughs> yeah. Um. So how did you? How do you? How did you? Yeah. So how did you transition to? <clears throat> um, because I was doing, because I was reading comics at this point, I started in addition to doing puns and stuff like that. 
I started writing scripts and I would take them into my local comic shop, which was Capital City Comics. And they had a location in Madison and one in Milwaukee. Um, and I would just make copies of my scripts and give them to those guys to read. And they ended up liking them. And they would be like, what are the next scripts? And they would tell me new comics I should read. And they were like, we think you write like this guy, you should read this. And, you know, and it was just this really organic, it was like a hobby. It was just a fun hobby thing. And then um, when my, when my six month job at that Sheboygan agency ended or sunk, you know, majestically, just like our, our boat. Um, I took another job writing advertising in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, and then in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, I did, a, it was like another six month thing. I was a junior copywriter. Those jobs don't last long because they're so based on how well the business is doing. And this was, you know, this was advertising in, in Wisconsin. Um, anyhow, one night there was a knock at my apartment door and three guys pushed their way into the, my apartment with guns wanting me um, to give them the drugs and money that they mistakenly thought I had for them. Have I told you the story? Um, you, yes, you've told me a version of it. Keep going. I want everyone to hear it. <laughs> so, so anyhow, I had heard stories of people not being trapped in their cars with people, not being trapped in their homes with people. So as the three pushed their way into my apartment, I pushed my way past them out into the hallway. So now they were inside with me or they were on the inside and I was on the outside. So two of the three guys came out and, um, you know, one guy was like, what's your name? Well, the first thing they said is, is I was like, look, I don't have any, I explained, I said, I don't have any money. I don't have any, I don't have drugs. You know, I just moved into this place. I said, there's, there's a stereo there. Um, you know, you could take that. It was a wedding gift, but it turned out not to be such a good marriage. So, I mean, even though stuff like that seems really funny now, I'm like, that's what I said. Uh, <laughs> You said that you said that to him. Oh yeah. It's, it's even <laughs> crazier than that. And so they were like, that's not what they wanted. They wanted the money and the cash. So the two guys are out in the hallway with me. And, and I'm thinking because the hallway is near the main door that comes in, maybe someone would come in and that would change things, but no one was coming in. And so the one guy goes, uh, what's your name? I said, it's Jim. He goes, no, it's not. It's Bill. I said, it's Jim. There's ID maybe in, in my wallet in the bedroom there. Maybe there's 20 or 40 bucks in there. If you know, I know that's probably, you probably want more money, but that's all that you're going to find in there. And they're like, go and get it for us. And I said, I'm not, I told you, I'm not going to go in the apartment with you. And so he's getting frustrated. He looks at the third guy and says, and comes back to me and says, well, you better do what we say because he has a gun. And I said, well, let me see it. And so that the guy pulls out a semi-automatic. Oh my gosh. And he's got the semi-automatic on me. Um, and the second guy goes into the apartment and, you know, I like, like my mind goes into some sort of black hole. Time means nothing. And this whole soliloquy emerges before me. You know, my first thought is of my, 
soon to be ex-wife who said that she was praying to God that I would die in a car accident. And I was like, he's answering her prayer. What kind of God would do that? (laughs) And then I started thinking about my mom and all the religious movies she would watch and Quo Vadis and all the happy Christians going into the pits to be, you know, and singing while the lions devour them. And I'm like, oh, my God this is it. I can't believe it. And I was like, all right. And so I looked at the guy and I said, look, I'm so afraid you're going to shoot me. I'm going to die. So before you do that, God loves you. And the guy, (laughs) the guy must've been haunted by the ghost of his grandmother at that point. Cause he was like, Oh shit. And he ran down the hallway and out that front door gun and all. Wow. And then there were the other two guys were in my apartment still. So I start going down the hall and pounding on neighbors doors. And then, and then finally a guy lets me into his apartment and I call the cops and stuff like that. And there are two ironies to this story. The first is that that guy's name was bill. The the guy who let you into his apartment, his name was bill. Yeah. Oh boy. So the second irony was that, Um, the guys did take one thing while they were in my apartment. That was my briefcase. And later on that night, um, you know, maybe two or three hours later, I get a call from, from someone like 20 miles away telling me that they had found my briefcase in the middle of like this country road because it's Madison, Wisconsin. And it had been, um, jimmied open. Sorry to use that phrase. Um, there'd been jimmied open and they found my, you know, they, they found my um, my business cards in there and stuff like that. But these guys who opened it up looking for drugs and money, what they would have found is all my sketches and all my ideas for stories that had been part of this hobby and all that kind of thing. And I was like, you know, it, it had all been returned to me. Some of those ideas I'm still turning into things now. And wow. so... So, you know, I mean, dealing with superheroes as much as I do, I look at this as kind of the secret origin (laughs) night in which, um, you know, growing up as cloistered as I did, you know, I I still found myself in a bad marriage. I still found myself with death at my door. But 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 there was this new greatness that had come upon that night and this this great sense of irony and this great sense of I thought my life was over but what was restored was like even my ideas and a courage to step out that that had never been there before so a lucky lucky thing wow that is that's something else there's so much in there Uh, I mean clearly one of my favorite moments is you (laughs) thinking you're probably going to die and so you just think to yourself well i better just get this out there to the guy who's going to shoot me dead god loves you (laughs) and the guy takes off running (laughs) so there was a sense in which i was given this this almost cosmic calling to do something yeah, and pretty much. So a week from then, together with this awesome art director, I had done some of the Sheboygan ads with. Um, I put together a bunch of mailers for myself, like these cards that would 
almost be like ads where they would have a, they would make a statement on the cover and then open up and then have like the punchline or whatever, all for my writing and, and start sending them to Marvel to get a job at Marvel writing advertising for them. And it was like three months, three months later and I was living in New York working. At wow. That's amazing. It's such a great story, Jim. There's a, there's a lot there. When you, um, when you got to Marvel, did you think to yourself, um, I, I'm here, I've landed, I'm just going to be happy and, or, or, or were you already thinking, man, I want to, I want to eventually get a shot at writing, uh, some of these characters. Um, well, I was really excited to be working there. But again, I just didn't even think that that I would get that opportunity. It was just, it was more like, it was more like every once in a while, dude. Like I would write a campaign for Spider-Man and, and what was going on at Marvel is, is Marvel at the time had just lost all the image artists because, or all the artists like Todd McFarlane and Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee, because they had gone to start image and Marvel's books weren't selling as well. And so like marketing and advertising was being so mean to editorial and threatening them and stuff like that. So here I come in, you know, with my Wisconsin zippity doodah attitude. And they're like, <laughs> you know, you know, they would be like, how are you? And I'd say, thanks for asking. And they'd be like, what, what's wrong with this person? <laughs> you know, I was clear. It was clearly, um, I, I was clearly a transplant um, into this environment, but, um, you know, I would write campaigns that were like great campaigns. I mean, advertising age was writing us up. We were getting all kinds of notice and, um, you know, like, like campaigns we'd never even that, that had like, we were using real advertising things to just telling stories at more or house for making house ads at Marvel. We were doing campaigns and all this stuff and Marvel had never seen that before. And, um, it just became this thing. But again, you know, there was so much animosity between editorial and that it was like, there, there just wasn't that much opportunity to step in, but every once in a while there'd be something, there'd be an editor that I would befriend, or there'd be someone who was excited. And, and it was just like, you know, it was like, where there was a crack, there'd be an opportunity to do something. What was you, what was your first published comic book? Uh, it was a backup story in Excalibur seventy five, um, and they were so nice to let me pick my artist, and so I grabbed this artist named Tim Sale, um, wow. and and that was his first work for Marvel, and wow. we did a Nightcrawler story. We did a Nightcrawler story about um, Nightcrawler because they always established that Nightcrawler was Catholic. And while I'm not Catholic, I think I would have made an awesome lapsed one, um, <laughs> given the opportunity and the, uh, the proper childhood. Anyhow, um, it, it was a story where, where there's a fire and Nightcrawler teleports into the fire to save a woman and then she sees him appear in the midst of the flames and she thinks she's gone to hell and it makes rescuing her all the worse. And so he ends up going to a confessional 
where while he's in the confessional, he um, confesses to being a mutant and has to do deal with then the racism and bigotry of the priest. But what's so interesting is it all it ends with um, the priest saying the priest confessing himself and admitting that we all have our crosses to bear as we see Nightcrawler's X-Men insignia. And then that got used at the end of the Wolverine movie. Logan. So that's cool. You know, very fun. So so it was like the first time that had been used as a way to, you know, compare the two imageries. Yeah. You're, you know, obviously you're known to comic book fans all over for um a lot of your work but 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 earth x is something that has uh, had a real lasting impact what was the uh maybe talk a little bit about you know how did that how did that project come about um excuse me how did that project come about and and um where what was it like writing uh such a a story at that scale with all of these characters that you had read over the years, what must have that have been like? Well, what's interesting is when I first started at Marvel, um, one of the things that my department did was we were also in charge of going to comic book conventions and meeting with people and talking with people and promoting at the conventions. And so one of the very first jobs I had um, talking was was promoting a new project Marvel had coming out called Marvels with an artist named Alex Ross, who at that point no one even knew about. And so Alex and I hang, got to hang out in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at a convention called Gen Con. And it was my job to take him and his art around and show it off to people and kind of befriend him and while we were there we talked about our love for jack kirby and machine man and all this sort of thing and we became instant friends and you know in that friend that friendship grew over the years um you know when he was working on kingdom come just coming up with the original ideas for the story and stuff like that we would talk about we would talk about kingdom come and different ideas and all that kind of thing and he um so So we knew each other. And then I was doing Marvel, always trying to find new ways to make money and new ways to deal with things. They were spending all this money advertising in this fan magazine called Wizard Magazine. And Marvel was looking for a way to save on all that advertising dollars. So they decided they were going to make their own fan magazine called uh, Marvel Vision. And so... And, and they needed, you know, like extra like things in it. So one of the things that was in Marvel Vision that I wrote every month is that we would hire an artist to redraw one of the original characters, whether Fantastic Four or Spider-Man or Silver Surfer, whatever, from a perspective, like a brand new artist or a hot artist of the day, but doing it in a way as if they had never seen what Jack Kirby did or Steve Ditko. Like the discipline was like, you can't think of what they did. You have to redefine this in a brand new way. And because those images were so interesting, I would write an alternate origin to them. And um, so like Jeff Smith, who who's famous for bone um, this this kind of kids all ages fantasy 
fantasy project. Um, he did the Silver Surfer. And Alex liked my origin so much. He was like, that's what the origin of Silver Surfer really should be. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And then he became like a real fan of this. And every time a new issue would come out, he would read that. He would want to read it. I would start sending him the origins that I wrote earlier. And it was just like a paragraph or two, but it would always be a little irony, a little, you know, this and that. And, and then Wizard approached Mark, approached Alex after, um, after Kingdom Come had come out and said, well, how would you show the Marvel heroes older? So Alex came up with, you know, 10, 12 sketches of, you know, 12 of the classic Marvel heroes, what they would look like and stuff like that. And he said, Jim, why don't you write? Why don't you do what you do for Marvel Vision for this? And I wrote it and, you know, and then Alex was... Alex was really happy. They had to pass him before Marvel. And then the president of Marvel at the time responded and said, okay, this is a real project done. Wow. That was just, it was just like that. And um, I, I know I, I know I used the F word earlier, which, which you can like, maybe we're saving that up, but, but <laughs> what one story for, for this, the other story you wanted me to tell, but I know that one of the real experiences, one of the real things I remember is, you know, you think, oh my gosh, I've got this giant project. I've got this giant project. That's it. I'm set. I'm set. I'll never have to look for jobs after this. They'll just come to me and stuff like that. Well, there was still that animosity with editorial. I remember walking by someone's office and they didn't know I was outside their office, but I heard them get the call that I was going to be writing this big project that Alex Ross was involved in. And I just heard them in their office go, fuck Jim Kruger. <laughs> and I, it was like, you know. You knew, I, you, after that, you knew you had arrived. Just <laughs> no, no, no. It was more like, oh, why couldn't it just have been fuck Jim Kruger? You know, <laughs> why couldn't it have been like that? <laughs> oh that's funny jim that's funny but um but it's like success brings its own you know there's the own other side of it and stuff like that but i got to write it and what was really fortunate fortunate for earth x because it explains so many of the mcguffins of the marvel universe and yeah. is not <laughs> only the first attempt but still kind of the only attempt to create uh a, a on the comic side, I mean, the cinematic universe is certainly doing this, but it's almost maybe the only attempt to tie together the continuity of 30, 40 years of unexplained MacGuffins and history and all that sort of thing mm -hmm. in a way that really took the 60s to the 80s and mm -hmm. made it all work together. Mm -hmm. Um and so because Marvel was going through all kinds of restructuring and because they had all kinds of financial problems at the time and were in whatever form of bankruptcy they were, the fact that we were selling meant that no one paid any attention to what we were doing. Nice. So we were in the top 10, like top 10 comics, every single issue of Earth X. And, um, you know, even when questions arose through editorial, even the editor in chief was like, well, it's working. So let's not touch it. It's one of our only things that's working right now. 
You know, I have a question. This is a kind of a side question, but I've always wanted to ask you this, which is, and just anyone who, <clears throat> who writes comics at the level that you do, do you, do you actually have a preference as to how you want people to experience your comic book? Do you want them to experience them as single issues and have to wait weekly or, or are you, are you perfectly fine with, with them reading it as a, you know, as a collected graphic novel? I, I, I because I mean, obviously they can, you can do either one, it's, but I'm just curious, given the fact that you grew up, you know, reading single issues and that's, you know, you fell in love with comics that way. Do you have a preference for how you want your audience to experience it? Uh, I don't think I do anymore. Like, like it's really interesting when you consider things like Netflix and binging and how we even watch TV shows now. We're not a people anymore who wait for things. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and yet there was, there was like, like even, you know, before a comic book comes out now, a single issue, you've you've seen synopsises of what's going to happen, and you've seen the cover and all the alternate covers, and that gives you hints of what's coming in. Like, I remember the days in which I would either be at a spinner rack in a drugstore or go into a comic shop, and the first time I would see a cover for an issue would be that day. And there was something so exciting about yes. that and being like, oh, oh my God, look at that. Oh, I have to have this. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, oh, I'm going to get this because I read this. Or, yeah. oh, that's that cover I saw. Or like, like there was a sense of reveal that that was more shocking then and more exciting then. Um, and sometimes when, when there would be... Um, you know, when there would be like a cliffhanger at the end or some, like it looks like your hero got shot or they, or the world exploded or whatever like that, you'd be like 30 days. I have to wait 30 days to find out. Right. Yes. Yes. You know, and there's, there's an excitement about that. Yes. There was definitely an excitement about that, but, yes. um, but that was also when there was only one or two Spider-Man books out there. Right. Now when, now when there are six or seven or eight Spider-Man books out there, you know, chances are Spider-Man really didn't get shot. <laughs> yeah. You know? I, 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 am, I have become less a fan of binging than I think when I first, you know, when Netflix first came out and started, that became a thing. I, I think there are certain shows that lend themselves to it for sure. Oh, me but, too. But I also think that, you know, uh, watching The Mandalorian with my kids uh, and waiting every Friday was fun. Like, oh it, my gosh, it, yeah. It's it's Sunday night pizza and soda. Yes, that's exactly right. What you that, that nostalgia you were talking about, it, it, it made it special again. But, you know, I also just binged um, Yellowstone, the Kevin Costner <laughs> show. And, I, I, and you know, I, I, I just got through the whole thing and really liked it and but yeah, I binged same, I binged Cobra Kai and that was so binge worthy. Yes, I did too. So good, right? So I go back and forth, maybe it depends on the show. But then I remember binging the last season of Stranger Things and at the end when I should be you know happy and content like I was when I like when I binged the last season of Cobra Kai, 
I, I was sad because I literally had the thought, I'm not going to be able to revisit these characters again for another three to four years at this point. And, um, and so that I, that I struggle with that. I go back and forth. I tend to think that, that, um, and you know, and shows like game of Thrones would never have reached their level of popularity if they had reached if HBO let you watch all of them at the same time, there really is something about those kind of shows like the Mandalorian where the more you're able to talk about them with your friends, right. right. It builds up this kind of this level of excitement and, um, for sure. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I wonder, I wonder if we're going to get to a point where things get re- released three episodes at a time, you know, and, and there's going to be a staggered kind of thing because I, I have to imagine marketers and different people are looking at that and they're saying, okay, how can we appeal to the binging crowd while at the same time allowing this to grow beyond what it would if you can just watch it in a weekend? Yeah. I think, I mean, and, and, you know, other people have tried different things, right? Like AMC would release walking dead in chunks. So you would get, they started doing part one of a season and then part two of a season. So you'd get like six episodes and then six episodes three months later. And so I think they, you know, different people have tried different things, but, and WandaVision just came out in two episodes because they're half hour. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, some people, I think probably that's the way they only want to experience stuff. And it's good that we have those options, but I just thought it was just curious about how you would want, you know, your comp. I, I, I enjoy experiencing comic books in graphic novel form. I like to read the completed story. I think it would drive me. I think it would drive me nuts if I had to wait 30 days to find out what happened. Well, and, and I think like, like when you look at something like earth X, um, there is something exciting reading it all together as one whole story because there's, it's like, that's a complex, that's a really complex story. Um, and it's not, it wasn't even necessarily it's, it was like a special project. So it's not like a monthly book where every month you get an ongoing chapter, moving it forward the, the way TV is. It's, it's meant to sit on its own. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm also a little lazy. I like, I like the publisher, <laughs> like I like the publisher does the work for me and collects whatever I need to read and all the, <laughs> yeah. all the additional tie in, you know, it's like, I don't really read, need to read that tie in uh, book. I can just read this tie in book. Cause you're telling me that's the one that's the most important. Um, so, you know, you, you, you've done a follow up to earth X with Al with, 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 um, um, Alex, Alex Ross. Yeah. Alex Ross. And, and, uh, and of course I, m- my first introduction to you before we even met in person was uh, Justice, and I I remember, as a matter of fact, you know some of our mutual friends. I, I distinctly remember. I think it was like maybe Brian Belknap, Nathan Scoggins, or someone. Um, they they said your name to me. They were with you at some event, and I said Jim Kruger, <laughs> and they said yeah. <laughs> And I, and I, no joke, Jim, I was on like on the phone with him and I, and I, I literally look right up, <clears throat> excuse me, at the bookshelf, like above my desk and justice is right there. And I, and I went the comic book, Jim Kruger. <laughs> and, and they said, and they said, yeah, I think so. And I was like, no, wait, I'm looking at, I'm looking at one of his books right now. And um, so justice was, you know, I, I, I had read it and was a fan of it even before I even met you. But, 
point to point to all this is your work with Alex Ross. I, I think people would be curious to know he's such a legend in and of, him, uh, of himself. And I, and I, the pro the creative process when you work with him, what is that like? I, I, I think people would really like to know how do, how do you two work together in creating these projects? Is it, <clears throat> Uh, how collaborative is it in nature? Um, do you, uh, and, and, and what is that like? Do you guys just sit down and do like hour long sessions where you just bust everything out and then go back and forth on things? Or is it, is there an outline created? I'm just curious about your creative process with Alex. Yeah, I'll, I'll back up just a second to talk about something an agent told me years ago. Um, an agent told me years ago, I think I was telling them because how I started getting involved in all the movie stuff was through foot soldiers because I met a guy in the back of a bus going from Manhattan to Montclair who turned out to be the executive producer of all the Batman movies. And, and he, he optioned one of my comic book projects. And then because they didn't want to pay the renewal of the option, he trained me for the next year in exchange for the year's option to write, to write screenplays. So that wow. origin is, is part of it. It's another one of those crazy, weird things where, where I say it's like stumbling, you know, my way into, into the industry. He, um, anyhow, I was telling my agent about, about him and working together. And I said, yeah, this guy's becoming, you know, he's becoming a real friend. Um, and they said, they were like, you know, Jim, it's not show friends, it's show business. And you know what? They've been wrong. They've been, that agent was wrong from wow. that point to now for the rest of my life. I will say that agent was wrong. He's right in the sense that for an agent, for a lawyer, it's show business, and you mm -hmm. let them do the business that that they get their percentage to do. But it's show friends for for anyone because this is collaborative, and you know the idea of working with people and having to work with people and listening to notes and not being offended by notes and that whole process is one that it, it requires. It requires embracing the other person as a friend and someone who's not an enemy to your project, but someone who's just trying to make it better. Mm -hmm. And so my rule of thumb with Alex is that his idea is good and has merit. And I wouldn't be here if he wasn't also here. And so if it's going to be a true collaboration, his idea somehow has to be represented. And he said, for the most part, no one's ever treated him that way. Like, <laughs> really? Yeah. So that seems so funny to me. Anyhow, um, the way we work is, is this, uh, earth X, despite maybe those first 12 sketches, was pretty much so just me writing and writing and wrote script after script after script. And then Universe X and Paradise X became 
more. Um, Alex had a bunch more ideas to move in and stuff like that. And the challenge was like then to work those ideas in and work work what we were doing in Earth XN. And then Justice, when we got to Justice, we started with the idea like, let's do a really serious Super Friends. Let's take, because so much of Alex's approach to heroes began in his childhood with that first Superman movie with, with Tommy, with, you know, with, you know, Jesus Christ superstar, with the super friends cartoons, all that kind of thing. And so it was going to that. And, and Alex was like, yeah, I want to do the, the Legion of doom. I want to do their headquarters. I want to do like, how do, how do we do this? And he's like, I have, a couple ideas about how how parasite and this villain and this villain could bring superman down and i have this idea here so i would say justice of what we've done is probably the most collaborative stuff because alex actually brought not not only an a big idea as far as wanting to do let's do super friends but he had a number of scenes that he had envisioned maybe there were three four scenes especially that that were vital to even plot that that he envisioned um and so it started like anything we we hang out we be friends we we geek out a little bit we talk about favorite characters we we talked about you know injustice we talked with with the book justice we talked about things that had happened in the dc universe that we wanted to change or we wanted to fix or we felt like in their continuity should have gone a different way. Like for example, the death of Aquaman's son was this classic, but heartbreaking story. And we're like, no, let's have Aquaman save his son this time. You know, let's, let's, let's write that wrong. Let's, and, and let's use the justice league characters that, that aren't so bound to this moment or these five years of continuity as to what's happening in the DC universe today. Let's grab the justice league that people know the world over that people remember from the cartoon that people know from the movies. There weren't many movies then, but, but let's make this a justice league. The one that the world knows if only in pop culture and in t-shirts and that kind of thing. Yeah, and justice has impacted a lot. Like I, I, I've noticed even a lot of what you guys um, created in that book is referenced now. Like I, I, you know, I'll see it pop up in the DC animated universe. You know, stuff that they kind of um, uh, and other and other things. And you know, do you um, do you uh, enjoy that? Do you now having, <clears throat> excuse me, collaborated with him and, and, and worked on so many different things, um, you know, you mentioned the Logan inference. Um, do you enjoy seeing uh, things that you have worked on and things that you've created now kind of pop up in the zeitgeist on occasion? Oh, yeah. Yeah, other, that's really fun. Other tar- see other artists take on your take the way you you know, we're attempting to do a take on something Alan Moore or something did. Now they're doing a take on what you and Alex Ross have done. Yeah, I think it's, it's really fun and it's really an honor and it's, you know, sometimes I think, um, like all religion is people attaching themselves to a bigger story 
and becoming part of that story. And so this is very much like that. It's very much why, like when you go to a Comic-Con, there's so much cosplay. There's so many people wanting to talk about things. It's it's like even the binging versus having to wait a week to watch the next chapter. It's like It's like we live our lives while discussing stories with each other, while being attached to other stories um, for meaning, you know? So yeah, I love it. I, I love, I love being um, maybe a punctuation or a run-on sentence in in the giant lore of Justice League and Marvel continuity. <laughs> That's great. I like that. Uh, the, let's let's get a, let's let's nerd out a little bit on the process of writing itself. Yeah, please. And let's talk about. Let, let's talk about plot versus character. And and I put, and, and, and hear me, I put the verses in there not to say that you have to go one or the other, but I would like to know from you um, um, in this, in the overall conversation of plot versus character, uh, where, where do you, um, um, where, where would you side kind of as you start to, as you start to write, um, do you, do you spend a lot of time on the character's choices and their, and the dilemma and the conflicts that come between them interacting and, and the, and oftentimes the plot kind of gets birthed out of that or, uh, or maybe the other way around you, ha- you come up with a idea for a, for a plot and then you maybe want to stick the characters in there and see, see, see how they operate. And I'm just curious, um, what your creative process is in developing plot and character. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of different for every, for every project. Um, you know, because I started out as just this dumb kid who could write puns. Sometimes I just start out with a piece of dialogue that I'm like, Oh, that's a great piece of dialogue. And I'll write it all around that piece of dialogue. Or I'll think of the ending to a the ending that I wished had happened for a bad movie, and then I'll rewrite the rest of the movie so I can have that ending. Or like my my first major comic book project um, before I even got into film was this thing called Foot Soldiers, and um, that came out of reading Alan Moore's introduction to Dark Knight Returns where he talked about characters don't become legendary. They don't really become a legend until you find out how they die. And so that led me to being like, okay, well, I'm going to tell a story about some kids that go to the graveyard of forgotten superheroes and they rob the graves and that's how they get their powers. They try to fill the actual shoes of the original heroes. There's the pun sneaking in. And then they find out how hard it is to fill those shoes as they face the oppressive robot things that control the streets, you know? And so it was, it's like all of that. I think I started when I started doing this, I started thinking, I started with dialogue and plot. That's where I started. But I, I just feel like, you know, the choice a character makes is plot the it's it's break, like break that, break that break that down for those you know for my writers who are listening here um what do you mean by that the decision a 
character makes is plot. Like the break from act one to act two is usually a character going on a quest. It's usually them saying, um, I refuse to live in the world the, the way it's been. I refuse to stay in the world it's been. I refuse to even just remain the person I've been. I'm going to do this thing that has to be done. I almost have no choice, even though they're making a choice. It's like either choose to remain the way you are or choose to change something. So the break from act one to act two is always choosing to change something. And that is the plot. That's that's your instigation of plot. And then it's building around that. So it's like, and and character is, character shows the change in story. We see their character in act one. We see a person's character in the first 10, 12 pages of the story. We see, you know, we see Luke Skywalker, a frustrated farm boy who's never going to get off the ground, you know, in those first 12 minutes, you know, that first act versus him ultimately at the end, destroying the Death Star. You know, he can't get off a planet and then at the end he blows up one or he blows up the planet blower upper, you know, it's like the, the two, you almost can't separate them, but sometimes plot is more important. Like if it's a mystery, maybe, but you can't get away with not showing character too. And so I think the growth of the writer is I think we tend to either start being plot people or character people. But as time goes on, we have to embrace the other as well. Mm. Yeah. Like, like it's part of the growth. Like, like in the end, we can't be one or the other. We have to be both. Yeah. No matter how, no matter on which side we start. And I think television you know, the, pro- the proliferation of television and streaming um, really forces people who are maybe plot heavy to really um, learn character better because that's the world of, you know, television is all about following that character every single week. So you have... And, and it allows you that extra time. It allows you so much extra time. I mean, I, I can imagine, you know, we plotters you know being like oh i've only got i've only got 110 pages to tell this story and this has to happen this has to happen and this has to happen character might show up in a couple pieces of dialogue but all this stuff has to happen but in tv you can let that breathe a lot more i also wanted to talk to you a little bit about ideas i mean one of my favorite jim kruger quotes is i i rise up and I'm, of course, I'm butchering the quote, but I remember you saying, I rise up and destroy entire civilizations before I have my breakfast every day. And just with, <laughs> with um, because you're, you know, you're always thinking of ideas, you're always thinking of characters. There's like so many things kind of flowing through your head of stories. And um, so what I wanted to ask you specifically is, I think there's a lot of people who will be listening to this and they would say, well, I I can create a lot of ideas too, right? Like I'm very generative with my ideas. Um, But as you and I both know, um, ideas are not the same as stories, right? Like anyone can, anyone can have an idea. And um, so my question to you is as someone who spends so much time creating, how do you know which ideas 
to pursue. In other words, if you are generating, if you are so highly generative with ideas, how do you know which ones are the ones that you actually want to spend your time developing into stories? How do you know when to set aside one idea to pursue another one? Uh, sometimes if it's I, like, I'll just write down an idea um, because I think, oh, that's funny or, oh, that's a good joke or, oh, I get how that would work. But it doesn't like it doesn't come back to me until I'm going through my notebook later. But if there's an idea I can't forget where I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a big story. And then other experiences in my life are making me remember that again. Almost, It's, it's almost Zen. It's almost like different things trigger me back to going to that idea or, or I'll be working on one thing and it reminds me of that idea or someone will say something or I'll see something in the news and it reminds me of that idea. Or I, I know that in my life, um, there's a sense in my creativity that's very Frankensteinian, Frankensteinian. Franken's no, I believe it's Frankenstein. No, sorry, just kidding. No, I was I was hoping you would take it there. I was I was trying to Frankensteinian. <laughs> but regardless, it's like taking things that you wouldn't think belong together and stitching them together to create something new. Like like, you know, this is why even when I was at Marvel, you know, one of my claims to shame, I guess, is the creation of Combo Man which was combo snacks, which took like a different slice of all these superheroes and made a really bad looking costume. And it turned into such a giant campaign for combo, for combo brand snacks. Like they had comic books. I, I have a basketball with combo man on the side of it. I have a jacket with combo man on the back of it. There were combo man calling cards in the day, like all this combo man stuff. And I'm like, Please, God, let my biggest success not be Combo Man. I feared that for a long time. That's funny. Um, but so if things piggyback, like like if it becomes like organic to me, where I can't put it to the side, then I'm like, okay, I need to work on this. But it's not, it's not only that. It's like, you know... It's, it's also this idea of what makes me angry in the world. Mm. Like, like if, if an idea or a story I'm writing speaks to something I'm angered at in the world, it becomes medicinal for like my soul to, at least in a made up world, to figure out a way to fix that thing. Like, like the, and I know we've talked many times and, and even with act one, I do a whole class on the power of no, but the things I, I socially and, and, and in my gut want to say no to become the things that I'm most passionate about writing about. And, you know, writers write wrongs, um, or they at least show the world a way to fix it and hopefully inspire change in that way. Mm. or inspire passions in that way. But there's there's definitely a thing that if I hate something, I love to write about it. That's really good, Jim. I don't think you hear that that angle discussed enough, right? It's always like, what are you passionate about? What are you interested in? What 
What do you love, right? Write what you love, write what you know. But fix write a what problem. You, like fix, fix a problem. problem. Yeah, write what you write what you hate is interesting. Because you're, you're, yeah. you are, you're, you're actually trying to fix a problem that inevitably other people have that same problem. Yeah. Yeah, and the bigger the problem, the more, the, the bigger your audience is. I mean, you know, it's not just, it's not just um, being held at gunpoint that time when, when I was in high school, I had really severe walking pneumonia um, and almost died. And there have been other moments in which death has been, I've, I've been close to death in my life. And so a lot of my stuff even includes how we respond to death. And, and so, and, and how like, Death is not the worst scenario. If, if you're going to die a coward, that's a bad story. So, so it's like bravery in the shadow of death, which is a big courage thing, is probably why I'm, I'm a fit for the movies I get to work on and the, the, you know, the comics I get to do. Because that's one of those things that, that fits me. And when I think about my upbringing and how cloistered it was, and I think about my mom and dad, I think like there's so much there that, said, that says I was raised to be somewhat cowardly in, in the way I moved through life. And, and that's why all these things and all these events have, have kind of helped shape the desire not to be that. So ultimately, when we write we're writing, we're writing our passions, regardless of the situation. We're writing our story over and over again, or writing the things that have triggered us over and over again. And that's how we get passionate. And that's how we choose between one idea and another. And another. Hmm. That's good. What, uh, in your experience, you, you and I have talked about this a lot, um, in the past about <clears throat> the struggles that maybe young emerging writers have in certain aspects what is something that you what's like a solid piece of writing advice is kind of your go-to writing advice for an emerging writer what would you say um, that you would like for them to to focus on to work on uh, to emphasize Uh, I would say don't be afraid of notes don't be afraid of getting notes this, and this goes back to that rule of show friends. It's like the person giving you notes. It's their job to give you notes. It's their job to tell you when something in your script doesn't work. Um, and if you've built a relationship with them in which you can have a conversation and go back and forth, you can always say, well, if I change that thing there to what you're suggesting, that'll change this other thing earlier on, which you really liked. So can we talk about other ways we can change this? Because clearly you see there's a problem there and I didn't even see it. Thank you for that. Um, can we talk about this and maybe come up with something between us? Like that's being like, we have to be open to notes. And like, I've, I've worked with so many writers who are so like, like they'll have me read their script and, and my response will be like, I, you know, well, this doesn't work here. And they're like, Oh, well, you just don't understand what I was trying to do and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, it's not on the page. I I don't need to, I don't need to hear your excuses. And I understand this is your passion. And I understand you because what happens is we as writers at that point, we so 
want to like, like this is us. We're putting ourselves out there. So the rejection of that thing in the script seems like a rejection of us. And it's not. It's just, oh, the math doesn't work. So can we, can we subtract here instead of putting a plus sign? Can we do this instead of this? And if we're able to separate ourselves enough from the work in ourselves, we don't have to be hurt yeah. when, when there's a note. Yeah. It's like you forgot to carry the one. Don't, don't yeah. take it. You forgot to carry the one. So the math is off. Don't, you're not going to be offended when you realize you forgot to carry the one. And that's why your math is off. But, but what if I'm, but what if I don't have a Jim Kruger in my life? Okay. I'm going to push back with you on this a little bit. Okay. I, I, I hear you. I think you're, what you're saying is important, but what if I'm in Sheboygan <laughs> at the fishing tournament? Right. Who, do I, who, who, uh, who do I go to for notes? Who, where, where, where do I go to, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. to, to, to get, to get that kind of input and advice that would, would actually help me? Well, you know, I mean, there are certainly writers groups you can do. There's certainly online stuff you can do. There's certainly people that you have friends and, you know, um, there are probably two types of mothers out there. There's the ones that will tell you everything that's wrong and they're not helpful. And they're the ones that will tell you that everything is right and beautiful and they're not helpful. Um, here's, here's how I like draw the difference between a good note and a bad note a good note or well i'll give you a bad note first because that's easier to explain a bad note is when someone tells you oh well i would i think you should do this and they tell you what the story is that they would write if they were a writer like which which would change your whole story it would change your act one your act two it would change the character it would change the plot and they're just telling you what they would do which is a bad note. A good note is for is is one that comes from someone who's paying attention to your story and 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 helps you be truer to your character than you are even being. Helps you see that oh wait, this is who I'm writing about. This is who they need to be at this point. Someone who invests themselves into your story to help your story become great as opposed to just, you know, them telling you what they would do if it was their story. You know, one of the things that you and I have talked about over the years is, um, and you, you do a great <clears throat> kind of class and lecture on the idea of pitching your testimony. And you talk about the power of the power of telling your story. And you've even said here on this uh, podcast today about oftentimes creating your stories is being able to basically tell your story over and over again in some way. And you have a really you have a really fascinating uh, uh, life that you've lived, Jim, and uh, and there's been some pain and there's been some hardship. And I wonder if you could, we could close out our podcast with you um, telling us, telling telling our our audience here just a little bit about your story and uh, some of the stuff in your past that has really kind of helped fuel and shape who you are today. Well, uh, and and I mentioned kind of kind of this perfect, you know, cloistered childhood of pizza and Disney and, you know, toe jobs, picking up cars with my dad that I would get comic books for, for doing the job. But then, you know, I, I mentioned that I was still in, you know, 
a bad marriage with a, you know, with death at my door and stuff like that. And, and for every lucky moment, you know, like, like meeting an executive producer in a bus headed to Montclair, um, I, I got to lecture at the white house one day, you know, too, like, like crazy, lucky, lucky things. But then, you know, there's, there's also a night in prison. There's, there's also, you know, difficulties and, and selling comic books just to make rent. And, uh, okay. So I should mention that, uh, my birthday is February 15th. That's, that's not me as, as we're a month away from that, trying to get gifts, but it's important for it's fine. I'll send you some chocolate. Okay. Just relax. Ew, not chocolate. This is this is California. I have to. I have to. L. A. Man, chocolate covered strawberries. What do you want? <laughs> I don't want anything. Um, but on February on February fourteenth, uh, Valentine's Day, I was given divorce papers from my soon to be ex, the same one who, I guess, God wasn't answering her prayer that I would die in a car accident, and so she was very disappointed. <laughs> God, how could you do this to me? How could you not answer my prayer? Oh, okay, God, I'll divorce him. <laughs> you know? That scenario. If you're not going to kill him, God, I suppose <laughs> you I'll know, You know I love you. You know how obedient I am. I'll divorce him. <laughs> anyhow, anyhow, I'm given these papers. This is Wisconsin. Um, I, we, I still have an apartment in New York or New Jersey. So I'm just like, I'm going to get I'm going to get out of Wisconsin. I'm just going to go and be my by, by myself for a while and stuff like that. So I hop in my car and I'm driving back to Jersey. I'm not really paying any attention. So I'm speeding and, and I hit Ohio and right around Wauseon, Ohio, the sirens go on and I get pulled over. And, you know, as I'm, as I'm, I notice it's like, 12 30 in the morning or one o'clock in the morning as i'm passing my license over i'm like oh it's my birthday can you just give me a break and there at my side are 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 my papers for the separation or divorce or whatever it was at the time i'm like look it was a bad day i just want to get home i just like look and he takes the license goes back to his car comes back and goes well your license is suspended and I was like, what? I wouldn't learn this until later, but, but my soon-to-be ex had gotten a parking ticket with my car that I wasn't aware of because I was trying to fix things in Wisconsin. So any notices to my mailbox I was not getting because I was just paying the basic things like rent and electricity. So I didn't even know. And in Jersey, if you don't pay your license, they suspend your, if you don't pay your tickets, they suspend your license. Thank God they don't do that in California. Thank God. Yeah, there'd be a lot of suspended license <laughs> <Yeah. around> here. <laughs> so anyhow, anyhow, he's like, uh, that's $500. That's $500 or a night in prison. And I had just given my ex like all my money. Like I just saved enough to get back to Jersey. I was like, I'll figure the rest of it there. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't have it. Blah, 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 blah. And he's like, okay. And then it's like going to one place where I get my ticket and then, and then it's, to, and then it's to the penitentiary. Cause all the, you know, the, all, all the, um, 
counties in this area of Ohio all share the same penitentiary. So, you know, it's, I get in there, it's my birthday and the guys, you know, they take my picture and they give me the bracelet, which they wouldn't let me keep after it was all over, which is really disappointing. I still have my prisoner handbook, but that's about it, you know, and then they take me in a room to change and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I, I guess the joke is at least I was naked in front of somebody on my birthday, <laughs> you know, but it's the full red orange jammies and then we take it they take me into the back and it's like that two-tiered kind of Shawshank thing and you know the guy behind the counter opens one of the opens the doors for me and he looks at me and you know I just started shaving my head at this point he's like back again maybe you'll learn your lesson this time I'm like do I argue with him? Do I tell him I've never been be here before? Do all bald guys look alike? What is this? And then he gives me this spray bottle and this paper towel and he goes, okay, go to, go to your cell and I'll, and disinfect the mattress and, and I'll give you your sheet and pillow for the night. And I get in there and there's like, there's like Carl's Jr. rappers in there. It's like they're not even cleaning this place really. And you know, there's there's no toilet seat. There's no, it's it's like it's it's the room, but but I'm by myself. I'm by myself. So, you know, anyone who's listening to this doesn't have to go even further um, as to what this evening was like, you know. Um, but you know, so I take it back and I go in and then they shut the door and there's no going in and out of the door. It's like the door is shut. And so I just remember thinking, thinking, well, this is probably as bad as it's going to get. This is probably as bad as anything's ever going to get. And then the next day, sorry, I have coffee coming. The next day, um, it opens up at, uh, they open the cells at six o'clock in the morning. So I didn't even get to sleep that much. And we go out and now you, I have all the guys outside are outside of their doors for them to, you know, make sure that we're all still there. And, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm like the new meat that came in at night and they're all looking at me and, you know, all these, and I'm like, what is this? So then I have a choice and, and they bring around the smell, the foulest smelling biscuits and gravy. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I don't even want to eat this, you know? And meanwhile, I've called my dad to come and get me. And even on the phone, I was kind of joking about, aren't you glad I didn't do this in high school? <laughs> you know, but here I am, you know, an adult and you have to come and bail me out. You have to leave your heavenly realm of, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to come into the hell of Ohio to pull me out of this place. And he's on his way. I'm like, okay, he'll pay the 500. I'll be on my way. And, um, you know, ultimately I had a choice. I could either go back in my cell where the door shuts. And I feel like I'm a little claustrophobic anyhow. Um, but not, not too bad. Like, I can discipline myself in any way. So, or I could go outside and they had these tables that were bolted down and there was one small TV that was there and the TV was showing the news. And I was like, Oh, I've been so stuck in my own story for, for these last number of months. I might as well see what else is on the news. Um, 
and there were some guys playing cards and they said change change the channel change the channel so the person operating the doors who's kind of the main guard in front of the main door changed the channel to a save by the bell marathon <laughs> so it's like that twilight zone episode where the guy's like going my way i'm like did i wrap my car around a pole last night is this purgatory <laughs> you know and i think since that or or that was right around the same time that i heard that screech had moved to port washington wisconsin so it, it was it was all this stuff going on and then there was this one guy there and and so like every time a new actress would come actor would come on and they they were pretty these guys playing cards would stop and start breathing heavy looking at the screen and i was like oh no and then there was this guy with a with this long rip van winkle zz top beard who was rocking back and forth saying 72 hours they said i'd be out in 72 hours so i was imagining <laughs> that he had been fully shaved when he was first here and and there's been all this time and i was like dad where are you how i know how long it took me to drive here didn't you leave when i called you know you should have been here already um and you know this this was just so i start wandering the the circumference of this holding area and there was like you know there were things you could read on like like here are your rights as a prisoner all that sort of thing and i came to a box like a small shelf of books and and i was just waiting and 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 so at the top of the pile of books was rick warren's purpose-driven life which was such a popular book everyone was reading it all that sort of thing you know and i was like what else am i going to do here so i pick it up to read it and i open and in his his introduction to his book he writes it is not an accident that you are here today reading these words and i shut the book and said fuck you rick warren No writer should do that. No writer should ever pretend to understand the cosmic whatever, you know, for the way someone would open their book. Shame on you, Rick Warren. I'll add that to the story. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Did your dad finally show up? Yeah, my dad finally showed up. He was was upset. He was angry. He didn't even like dealing with the cops (laughs) and that kind of thing. He took me back to my car. Um, I probably should have called, you know, New Jersey to have them cover me for the rest of the way, but they didn't have to. I, I didn't. I just drove home, made sure I didn't speed and, you know, kept my wits about me and, you know got home and, you know, slowly from that point, built my, built my way back. That is by far one of my favorite birthday stories of all time. <laughs> happy happy birthday, Jim. Happy birthday. Yeah, I think a year later, I was driving a friend to the hospital because she had terrible kidney stones. So that, that, was, that was a better birthday for me, at least. Well, here's hoping that your birthday this year uh is not in prison and um and not you're not reading purpose <laughs> <laughs> well well at least one of those things is guaranteed 
Oh man, Jim, this has been fantastic. I um, just think the world of you, my friend, and I just appreciate uh, all your um, uh, wisdom and insight and just uh, your kindness. You're, you were, you were such a kind person and I want people, and, I, and I'm, I'm sure that's come across in this podcast, but um, you were, you were such a generous, um, uh, kind person that, that is, you've really um, impacted a lot of people. And I just want to thank you for, um, thank you for that. Thank you for who you are. And thank you for doing this uh, podcast with me. Awesome, Jimmy. Anytime. Um, Now, if it's okay, I ask if I can pray for my guests at the end of every podcast. Would you let me do that? Yes, please. (laughs) That's right. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. And thank you so much for my friend, Jim. And I just, I just want to pray right now for a blessing upon his life. And uh, thank you for his friendship. Thank you for who he is. And I just pray right now that you would, uh, um, uh, that you'd bless him. You'd bless his, his, uh, his marriage. You'd bless his uh, relationship with his family and friends. Uh, you'd bless his career. God, I pray you would, <clears throat> I pray that Jim would find himself in some fantastic rooms telling great stories and um, entertaining people in uh, amazing ways, uh, whether that be through film or TV or, or comic book. And uh, God, just thank you for the way you've created him and gifted him to tell stories. And um, just thank you for for um, uh, for Jim. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Your promise we stand. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Act One podcast, celebrating over twenty years as the premier training program for Christians in Hollywood. Act One is a Christian community of entertainment industry professionals who train and equip storytellers to create works of truth, goodness, and beauty. To financially support the mission of Act One or to learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com. Oh, 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 o